Hello, this is the Medici Podcast, Season Zero Prelude, Episode One, The Fractured Kingdom. fall of 476, an honored prisoner arrived at a seaside fortress on the Bay of Naples, today called the Castel dell'Ovo, or, in English, Egg Castle. The prisoner is well guarded, even though he's only 16 years old, and he may have walked into his new home while dressed in silk robes. What he felt in that moment, we cannot say. Maybe he felt something like grieving rage against his captives or some mixture of both. Personally, though, I would guess that he felt overwhelming relief. In any case, the Castel dell'Ovo was built in the first century BC, which were much better times for the Romans than the era the teenager found himself born into. Originally, it was intended to serve as a luxurious vacation villa, right in the heart of the Roman Republic's hottest vacation spot, the region of Campania, right on the Bay of Naples. Since then, much like the declining empire of the Romans itself, the villa became much less like a pleasant beach house, and much more like a military barracks. In fact, the fortress still exists today. It looks like a humorless and featureless leviathan of stone rising out of the sea. It was this place that, as far as history knows, would be the forever home of Flavius Romulus Augustus, better known to history by the diminutive Romulus Augustulus, Little Augustus. He had been propped up on the throne of the Western Roman Empire by his father, reigned but not ruled for about a year, and then the German general Odoacer quietly shipped him off to the somber palace where, as far as we can tell, he lived out his entire life behind walls of stone. Whether you're of the opinion that the last emperor of the Western Roman Empire was actually Romulus Augustulus, or the exiled Julius Napos, who kept claiming the title from his exile in modern-day Croatia until his assassination in 480, there's no debate over what the man who got rid of Romulus Augustulus became the first Rex Italiae, King of Italy. Of course, Odoacer held the title just at the behest of the one Roman emperor left standing, Zeno of the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire. At least that's what the enragement was on paper. In reality, Italy itself had joined many of the former provinces of the Western Roman Empire in becoming new independent kingdoms under German dynasties. Uh, wait a minute, you might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with the Medici? Well, nothing directly, but the story of the Medici is intertwined with that of Italy, especially with Italy's existence as a collection of city-states, duchies, one kingdom, and one theocracy, 
more often at war with each other than not. Also, for the purposes of our narrative, I think it's a worthwhile starting point for our story. It's certainly a neglected topic worth exploring. At least in my experience, even college-level intro to world history courses skim over this entire period. So you have the Western Roman Empire collapses, and when you catch up with Italy again, it's already the 14th century, and Dante has finished writing his Divine Comedy, and we're about to get started on the origins of the Renaissance. So for that reason, and because I think it makes for a nicer, if messier narrative, let's start our story in the Italy of the so-called Dark Ages. Now, I suspect, especially if you have already read a lot of history or listened to a lot of podcasts like this one, you already know that there's been a lot of pushback against the term Dark Ages because, as the historian Constance Britton Bouchard puts it, it carries, quote, a tone of moral judgment. Even then, I'm sure the term Dark Ages conjures up images of Mad Max medieval style. Now, it is true that the collapse of the Western Roman Empire hit the more rural, less prosperous northern peripheries of the empire hard, Britain especially. We don't know much about what it was like to live in Britain after the Roman army evacuated the island in 409 because of a lack of written sources, but archaeology has filled in some of the gaps. Currency almost disappeared completely. No buildings made with mortar were constructed and apparently not a single pottery producer was still working after the year 500. Also, Londinium, modern-day London, once the largest city in Roman Britain, became completely abandoned for at least almost a century. Italians experienced the end of the Western Empire differently, at least somewhat. It wasn't like in Britain or most of Gaul, where suddenly instead of actual professional bureaucrats and magistrates running things, you had to work for a local warlord. And that was if you were lucky. If you weren't so lucky, he would take you or a family member for ransom or sell you into slavery instead. Sure, if you are a medieval Italian living in the city and quite well off, even you might find it way too expensive to buy precious stones or silk, or even certain spices like your grandparents used to be able to. The days of the empire's globe-trotting super-rich, who, for example, might own homes in Milan and Rome, a vacation villa in North Africa, and a farm in some vineyards in Portugal, were long gone, and Rome was a much smaller place than it used to be, having possibly lost as much as nine-tenths of its population out of something around 800,000 people over the course of the painful and violent 5th century. But maybe your favorite local merchant still had some trade contacts in Antioch or Alexandria, or any of the thriving cities in the Middle East, which was still the richest region of the Mediterranean world, and safely still united under the rule of someone named Emperor of the Romans. And if you lived in Rome especially, politics probably didn't look all that different. Remember, Romulus Augustulus was just quietly shipped off and replaced by someone else. Sure, the new guy was German and called himself a king rather than an emperor, but he was thoroughly Romanized, and Italy had been practically run by Germans for decades anyway. Even the Senate of Rome was still having its meetings, like always. Sure, they were 
basically a glorified city council by this point. But that's what they had always been for as long as anyone could remember anyway. Even after Odoacer was overthrown and killed by Theodoric, another Romanized German who hailed from a people called the Ostrogoths, it was still a new boss, same as the old boss situation. Under the king, history would remember as Theodoric the Great. The old imperial bureaucracy even remained mostly intact. The good times never last, though, especially if you're talking about the 6th century in Europe. Ironically, it would be the mission of the Byzantine Emperor Justinian to resurrect the old empire by reclaiming Italy that nearly doomed the ancient capital he so wanted to rule. Using the assassination of his ally Amala Swintha, Theodoric's daughter and then Queen of Italy, as a pretext, Justinian sent an army to invade Italy in 535, igniting what historians label as the last of the Gothic Wars. This was one of those wars that ultimately ends up having no winners at all, and becoming a disaster for everybody involved, especially the powerless people whose land was under siege. The Byzantines did eventually retake Italy, while the Ostrogoths still managed to rally around the new king, a royal on loan from the Visigothic kingdom in Spain named Tilo. But nonetheless, catastrophe loomed over them all in the form of the Lombards. The Lombards were another Germanic people migrating south to escape attacks by the Huns and failed harvests that were a major symptom of the wetter and colder weather caused by 6th century climate change. During the Gothic War, they had been a reliable source of mercenaries for Justinian's invasion force. But as is often the case, today's hired mercenary is sometimes tomorrow's enemy. The Lombards turned on the Byzantines and crushed what was left of the Ostrogoths, establishing their own Italian kingdom. Although the Byzantines would hold on to the island of Sicily and a good part of southern and northeastern Italy. From this point on, Italy would not again be united under one government for another 1,300 years. The grueling 20-year war the Byzantines waged against the Ostrogoths and the invasion of the Lombards left much of Italy in ruins. The city of Rome, Justinian's luring prize, was all but destroyed. Most of the citizens had fled or died from famine caused by the sieges the city suffered. The last working aqueducts were broken and never repaired and the neglected farmland around the city had turned into swamps. Where once there were bustling city streets, there were open fields where the remaining inhabitants let their livestock graze or grew vegetable gardens and fruit trees. It was even said that, in a fit of rage, Tatilo considered completely raising even what little was left of the once great metropolis. But Rome was not the only casualty. In what is now the northeastern Italian regions of Veneto and Friuli Veneto Giuli, a few cities like Concordia and Aquileia, all of which could trace their histories back to the heyday of the Roman Empire and beyond, were completely destroyed by the Lombards. They left behind nothing but a name on a map, if that. It was the refugees from these cities, at least according to legend who relocated to the lagoons to the south of their former homes, 
and started what would become the city of Venice, which, spoilers, will become a major character much later in our story. For now, the Lombards didn't get to enjoy the spotlight for all that long before they were knocked off the stage by the Carolingians, a dynasty that came to power in what, for the sake of convenience, I'll call France, and founded an empire that stretched from what is now northeastern Spain to Croatia. Side note, at the risk of complicating an already overloaded narrative, I have to point out, because I know somebody might bring it up, the Lombard Kingdom did survive in the form of the Duchy of Spoleto and the Principality of Benevento in south-central Italy. Carry on. Under the Carolingians, Italy only fractured even further. The adorably named Carolingian king, Pepin the Short, granted control of Rome and various lands around central Italy to the papacy in Rome, forming the nucleus of what would become the papal states. This act would also finally answer the question of what happens when you take the leading figure of a religion whose founder extolled poverty and nonviolence and make him into a territorial magnate with his own feudal army. The short answer, by the way, is you get centuries of shenanigans. After dividing their empire amongst themselves following the death of Pepin the Short's son, Charles the Great, a.k.a. Charlemagne, some Carolingians would keep using the old title of King of Italy, even though that kingdom was now mainly just reduced to northern Italy, with some chunks of central Italy too at times. After the last Carolingian to rule in Italy, the not-so-adorably named Charles the Fat, was left to rot in prison after a coup. The title was fought over by the Carolingians, who still held power in Italy, and a series of regional nobles, with no less than eight different would-be kings of Italy at one point. Now, after rushing through about 200 or so years of history, I want to take a moment to say that if you're ever abducted by a demented Time Lord who wants to force you to live in the European Dark Ages, but you at least get to choose which country you have to live in, you'd probably want to pick Italy. All through this period of invasions, counter-invasions, political fracturing, chaos, northern Italy actually did pretty well for itself. Outside the city of Constantinople, northern Italy was the most urbanized part of Europe. Three-fifths of the old Roman towns and cities in the region survived. And, in fact, archaeological discoveries suggest there might have even been some urban growth in this time. This is my own speculation here, but maybe it was because northern Italy remained a gateway for trade between the Mediterranean and Germany and France, where the main political centers of Western Europe had shifted. Or maybe it was just that northern Italy was part of the old heartland of the Roman Empire, but hadn't been largely devastated or split apart like central, southern, and northeastern Italy. In any case, the old city-based society of the Roman Empire survived in a way, unlike many of the western territories of the former empire, where city life all but evaporated, and the most important economic and political centers instead became the great royal states. In fact, more financial and commercial documents survived from northern Italy, than anywhere else in Europe during the Dark Ages, giving an impression of a society that was still fairly sophisticated when it came to commerce and the bureaucratic regulation of it. The following is an actual document from 8th century Milan, 
translated and edited by Robert S. Lopez and Irving W. Raymond in their primary source collection, Medieval Trade in the Mediterranean World. It has a bit of a ring of modern bureaucracy to it, although the subject of the document, as you'll see, will give you a sharp reminder that we're still talking about a time period very, very different from our own. In the 13th year of the reign of our Lord, most excellent man, King Lugprand, on the eighth day before the Ides of June, eighth indiction, good fortune, I, Faustino, notary by royal authority, wrote this document of sale, invited by Irma Druda, honorable woman, daughter of Lorenzo, acting jointly with consent and will of that parent of hers, and being the seller. And she acknowledges that she has received, as indeed she at the present time is receiving from Tatone, most distinguished man, 12 new gold solidi as the full price for a boy of the Gallic people named Satrilano, or by whatever other name the boy may be called. And she declared that it had come to her from her father's patrimony. And she, acting jointly with her aforesaid father, promises from this day to protect that boy against all men on behalf of the buyer. And if the boy is injured or taken away, and they are in any way unable to protect it against all men, they shall return the solidi in the double to the buyer, including all improvements in the object. Done in Milan, in the day, rain, and in the eighth indiction mentioned above. The sign of the hand of Armadruda, honorable woman seller, who declared that she sold the aforesaid Frankish boy of her own goodwill with the consent of her parent, and she asked the sale be made. The sign of the hand of Lorenzo, honorable man, her father, consenting to the sale. The sign of the hand of Theoporto, honorable man, maker of curuses, son of the late Giovanni relative of the same seller, in whose presence she proclaimed that she was under no constraint giving consent. The sign of the hand of Ratchis, honorable woman, Frank, witness. Antonino, devout man, invited by Ermatruda, honorable woman, and by her father, giving his consent, undersigned as a witness to this record of sale. I, the above Faustino, writer of this record of sale, after delivery, gave this Now imagine trying to rule as a feudal monarch over a society where the warrior nobles out in the countryside who are supposed to help prop you up don't actually have that much money and power, but the cities do. What this means is if you want or need a little war, you can't just pop over to your top magnate's territory and ask him and his followers to come fight for you because they swore an oath of fealty. And oh yeah, there will be plenty of glory and loot to be had too. Now instead you had to go to these cities, hat or crown in hand, and haggle with the leading citizens for cash and soldiers. And the cities weren't just going to hand all that over, King Rome. For just one example, King Berengar I of Italy had to go begging the cities to help fund the defense of his kingdom from the raids of the Magyars. Better known to you if you're in the English-speaking world as the Hungarian. In exchange, Berengar had to give up special rights, privileges, and lands to the cities or their individual leaders. 
And the really annoying thing about rights, privileges, and lands is they're much harder to take back than to give away. The cycle of needing to chip away at your own power base as king in order to get the support you need to go to war would not end with him either. So that's the more mm, wider view, historian the explanation for why we don't have a unified, independent kingdom of Italy for that long, relatively speaking. But a more dramatic explanation boils down to the young Pope. Not the one played by Jude Law, but the real young Pope, or to go by his papal title, Pope John XII. He was the illegitimate only son of the nobleman Alberic of Spoleto, at the time the de facto ruler of Rome, who had handpicked the last five popes. When he realized that he was about to be killed by the fever he was suffering, he gathered together the top citizens of Rome and made them swear over the tomb of St. Peter that they would elect his son, who had just been ordained into the clergy, as the next pope. They readily agreed. The fact that Octavian was only 18 at the time was incident. Their motives are unclear, but they did elect Octavian and made him pope in 955. There just aren't that many sources about this pope, and the only chronicler of his pontificate was Bishop Luprand of Cremona, who absolutely loathed the kid. In fact, Luprand alleges the following about the young pope. Gambled using the church's money, and maybe even worse, would invoke the aid of Venus and Jupiter while rolling the dice. Women on pilgrimage were afraid to visit St. Peter's because they had reason to believe they would be sexually assaulted by the pope made his mistress Anna the governor of one of the cities in the Papal States, castrated and killed a subdeacon, slept with his niece and his late father's former concubine, had his political enemies' tongues torn out and their fingers and noses cut off, ordained unqualified men as bishops in exchange for bribes, never made the sign of the cross. As you might expect, even though he was a contemporary of Pope John's, Leprin's account should be taken with a grain of salt, especially given his obvious political bias against Pope John XII. That said, it's hard to imagine a teenager who got made Pope for cynical political and dynastic reasons wouldn't have at least a few peccadilloes even if he wasn't actually a horrific rapist. At the very least, it can be said with certainty that Pope John XII was guilty of having some really terrible political instincts. Berengar II, the latest man to claim the title of King of Italy, as well as the now practically empty title of Emperor, was invading territory belonging to the Papal States. So the Pope sent a plea for help to Germany. Now, since the line of the Carolingian family ruling Germany had died out, the most powerful magnates of Germany started electing the next king of Germany from among their own number. The second king they chose was Heinrich the Fowler, the Duke of Saxony. 
After his death in 936, his son managed to get elected to succeed him as King Otto. Otto had clashed with Berengar II before, so he must have seemed like a good choice to be the papacy's protector, at least for the time. Indeed, Otto would soundly beat Berengar again and had him imprisoned in a Bavarian castle, where he would die in captivity. In exchange, on February 962, the Pope crowned Otto and his wife Adelaide of Burgundy as Emperor and Empress. By the way, many historians would call this the moment the Holy Roman Empire was founded, even though the actual term wasn't used until the 13th century. That's the kind of compromise with semantics you have to make when you do history. And anyway, I really like having the Holy Roman Empire inaugurated by a top contender for the title of Unholiest Pope in History. It's things like that that make me love the subject. Anyway, as soon as Otto was making his way back across the Alps, Pope John two-timed Otto and offered the crown of Italy and the title of emperor instead to Berengar's son, Adalbert. Leprend of Cremona tries to make it sound like Pope John was acting out of pure malice. But it does seem logical he would get buyer's remorse. Maybe he learned something that convinced him that Otto was as much a threat to the Papal States as Berengar ever was. Or he realized that with Berengar gone, he was seriously lacking in leverage against the new emperor. Whatever his reasoning, though, Pope John badly miscalculated. Otto was free to turn around with his army back to Rome and put the Pope on trial before a Papal Senate whose participants included our not-so-trusty narrator, Leprend of Cremona. Pope John refused to dignify the trial with his presence, but Otto and the bishops pressed on with the charges of sexual deviance, blasphemy, and corruption. According to Leprend, Otto even wrote to the Pope, begging him to appear. His only response was a letter addressed to the Senate itself, declaring, quote, Bishop John to all the bishops, we hear that you wish to make another pope. If you do, I excommunicate you by Almighty God. And you have no power to ordain no one or celebrate Mass. Allegedly, the Synod's reply was, quote, We always thought, or rather believed, that two negatives made an affirmative, if your authority did not weaken that of the ancient authors. Anyway, the Synod, under pressure from the Emperor, made the superintendent of Rome's scribal schools, Pope Leo VIII. Despite the problems with John XII, the new Pope Leo VIII was a layperson who had to be fast-tracked to the ranks of the church before he could be invested with papal authority. Meanwhile, and probably the biggest indication of Leprin's description of the real-life young pope is perhaps a tad skewed. Local resistance rallied around Pope John XII and against Leo immediately. Otto couldn't even press the point and protect his own nominee. His troops were restless, and it was politically dangerous for him to stay away from Germany for too long. Still, though, Pope John may have escaped both holy and imperial justice, but he could not escape Leprend of Cremona's acid pen. Certainly, he didn't come to a good end, either, if you can believe Leprend at all. Supposedly, he died at the age of 27, either because he had a stroke while having sex with a married woman, or because her husband caught him and beat him to death. 
What we can say without any doubt about Pope John is that he signed the death warrant to the Kingdom of Italy when he crowned Otto King and Emperor. From that point on, the title of King of Italy became inexorably linked with the Holy Roman Emperors, until in the early 16th century, Emperor Ferdinand I stopped officially using it. The old title of King of Italy wouldn't even see the light of day again until the meteoric rise of a French general of Corsican origin named Napoleon Bonaparte. But now we're really jumping ahead of where we're supposed to go. The point is, a royal title and a dollar would just get you a kirk if you don't actually have the territorial control to back it up. Otto already got a taste of this lesson when he found he couldn't risk an extended Italian workation to force the Pope back in line. His successors would also learn that it's hard to keep steady control over an entire region when every time there's a serious problem you have to cross the Alps with an entire army and trust you won't have invaders attacking or treacherous nobles and bishops undermining your regime back north. Next time, one of the most celebrated female rulers in European history, Matilda of Tuscany, puts even more strain on the ties binding the Italian cities to the empire, and an all-out revolt against the empire breaks out and these ties finally do snap. Be sure to check out MediciPodcast.com for maps, bibliographies, and more. There, you'll also find ways to support me and the podcast through Patreon or with one-time payments. Remember, I'm yet another underemployed and underpaid millennial, so it counts as charity. Also, it helps me keep the podcast going through buying books for research and upgrading my equipment. Thanks for listening, and buona notte.